0: All right, so hello, Women of Hope. Good morning. Uh, If I haven't met you yet, my name is Alex Whitaker. I serve uh, in a couple of roles here at Hope. Uh, The first one is I'm our Women's Ministry Coordinator over at the South End site. Um, And then secondly, I serve as the Lay Ministry Development Director, which is a mouthful. And that's just a simple way of saying I kind of oversee some of our volunteer teams at all three of our sites. So, mostly I'm at South End, but, um, I, I do pop around to Cotswold and OP a little bit too. So, uh, I've been in Charlotte now for nine years. Uh, I moved here originally to go to seminary at Gordon-Conwell, um, and then during that time started going to Hope, and that turned into, uh, going on to staff here, um, a couple years after that. So, that's kind of my history, my background here a little bit. And so, uh, we are now in week two of our fall women's Bible study, uh, where we're we're going to look together uh, at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Um, and if you're not super familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, or if you haven't spent much time uh, kind of in Scripture before this study, uh, it may be a bit hard to kind of get your bearings. Uh, On what all we're talking about, and at first, and that's you know totally normal. Um, So, just I kind of wanted to give a quick refresher. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount is uh, found in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapters five through seven, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount uh, because it was literally where the sermon was taught, right? So, it's Jesus uh, teaching his disciples on the side of a mountain, which is just a mental picture that helps me. A lot. Um, It's a fairly unique place in scripture, uh, partly because while we do see Jesus teaching in many places in the gospel accounts, uh, this is one of the only places where we have such a kind of lengthy and direct uh, sermon all in one place and at one time. And amazingly, this is three whole chapters in a row of Jesus teaching uh, which is largely him expounding on a uh, given commentary on the Ten Commandments uh, from the Old Testament, which is, again, really cool because that's just what we wrapped up our sermon series on, I uh, hope. So I love that we're doing this. Um, another possibly confusing uh, thing that you're going to hear us talk about in the next couple weeks is this, the Beatitudes. Um, and the word itself might throw you off if you've never heard it, but... Um, But simply put, beatitude just means it's the Latin word that means blessed. Um, And in the context of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, at the very beginning of his sermon in Matthew 5, verses 2 through 11, Jesus makes these nine statements, or um, as we're going to think about them, nine invitations into the life of flourishing and um, they follow this pattern, right? They follow a pattern where it sounds like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, or blessed are those who mourn, for for they shall be comforted, or blessed are the meek, uh, for they shall inherit the earth, and so on and so on. Um, So just to recap, right? The Beatitudes are part of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, right at the beginning, where Jesus invites us into this way of being a way of flourishing, and then the rest of the sermon, he paints a picture of this, he paints a picture of the flourishing, um, the flourishing life by kind of expounding on the Ten Commandments. Does that make sense? Okay, so again, I just like to think about um, the whole context of this sermon, because it kind of helps me get, get my bearings, right? And I should say here, too, um, is that if you weren't able to be here last week, um, or if you, you're listening on the podcast... Um, and our one in one of our night groups that we have. Um, and you missed Jen's lecture last week. I would definitely go back and listen to that um, because she did a great job of kind of setting up and explaining kind of what we're going to be talking about this semester, how we're going to think about um, each one of these paradoxical beatitude invitations as a way of being, a way of flourishing, and a way of experiencing God's kingdom even now. As we journey through the life of faith in which Jesus calls us out of slavery, through the wilderness, and as we kind of wait on the promised land, okay? So uh, now that we've got our bearings a little bit, um, we're going to move now into our time of Lectio Divina together. And again, Jen did a great job last week of explaining this, um, but essentially this is a practice that we're going to do every week together, um, and it's a sacred practice slow reading of the passage of scripture that we're going to be looking at specifically today. Um, And this reading is an opportunity for us to kind of take a deep breath, uh, to engage our hearts, our bodies, our emotions, our whole selves engage with um, what the Spirit might want to bring to our attention today. Um, Okay, so we're going to take just a minute here uh, to be silent together. That's kind of how we start this time to try and slow down, um, you know, pay attention to how we're coming into the room. You coming in hot? I bet you are. Um, I'm literally hot right now. Um, just try to slow down, take a deep breath, be present to where you are right now as we read the passage. And it might feel a little awkward, probably will. Um, that's okay. Um, and at the end of our silence, I'm going to read our passage. Um, we're going to read it three times. The first time I read it, though, I want you to kind of make notes in your head or write it down of any word or phrase that jumps out to you. Um, you may, yeah, you just write that down or think about it. Um, remember, there's no wrong answers here. Um, and you don't have to have a big reason why something stands out to you. Just simply trying to pay attention um, to to what's coming coming up for you, what stirs. So... The passage today that we're going to look at is um, Matthew 5 verses with a well, verse 3 is the first beatitude that we're going to look at, and then it's going to follow verses 13 through 16. So before we get started on that, we're going to do just a minute of silence, um, and then I'll, I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll jump in together. So let's be silent here for a couple seconds. <coughs> I thank you just for the moment to to be still, to know that you're God, to know that you're present here with us in this room, in our hearts. Um, And Lord, by your spirit, I pray that you would speak to us now through your word. Um, Help us to pay attention to what you'd have for us today (coughs) in this passage. Uh, We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So we're going to pay attention now to a word or a phrase that jumps out to you. This is Matthew 5, verse 3, and then 13 through 16. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I'm going to read this a second time now. And this time, um, I want you to try to imagine yourself in the scene, right? Maybe you're one of the disciples. Maybe you're a person in the crowd. Um, And I want you to imagine looking at Jesus' face when he's talking about uh, being a light in the world, you being the light of the world. Um, How does Jesus' face look? Um, How does the light of Jesus shine through me? Right? Is it bright? Is it dull? What comes to mind? Maybe, maybe write that down. So let me read this again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We're going to read it one more time. And this time, uh, I want you to pay attention to what do you notice about the kingdom of heaven in this passage? What do you notice about the kingdom of heaven? Um, Maybe what's the invitation for you as we read this one more time? So, yeah. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, thanks for, thanks for doing that with me. Um, we're going to jump in now, uh, and as we do, I want to try to frame our time in the next couple of minutes by answering just three questions. First one is, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? How do we define it? Um, what are we shooting for? Okay. Second one is, how do we get there? Um, how do we become poor in spirit? And the third question I hope we can answer together um, is where does being poor in spirit lead? What will it look like for someone to kind of flesh out being poor in spirit? So three questions. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? How do we get there? And where does it lead? Okay, that's where we're headed. So first, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? I think for a long time, Um, When I read this, I would breeze over this statement and I just like kind of assumed it meant to be sad. Um, I guess if I had kind of really paid attention, um, (laughs) you know, that I would have realized that the next immediate statement is Jesus talking about those who mourn. Um, And so I don't really know why that would make sense. um, Jesus talking about people being sad back to back. Um, So it doesn't really make sense. But poor in spirit is actually just another way of saying that someone is spiritually poor. Um, And I like the way that the message kind of paraphrases this idea, and it it says it this way, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. You're blessed when you're at the end of their rope. And it's pretty jarring to think about the disciples sitting on the side of this mountain with Jesus, getting comfortable uh, to listen to him teach, and then right out of the gate... Uh, He's talking about the kingdom of heaven belonging to those who lack spiritual power. People who are helpless on their own strength with no means of support. Um, If I'm one of the disciples, I'm probably feeling pretty taken off guard. Like, Jesus, you're telling me now that the way of thriving, the way of growing, the way of flourishing is to be morally, spiritually bankrupt. Um, we've left everything to follow you. Shouldn't that count for something, right? If you're like me, you might resonate with the tension, maybe the defensiveness that the disciples probably felt here. I want my good deeds uh, and my efforts to count for something. I like to think of myself as a really good person who does really good things for God and for other people. And somewhere in there, you know, I'm also kind of thinking I'm racking up gold stars, uh, for my performance. That makes me feel good about myself. And when I'm being honest. It actually makes me feel justified. For looking down on others. Who aren't doing all the good things that I'm doing. Um, but as we'll see today. Jesus, When Jesus talks about being poor in spirit. He's talking about a way of being. That doesn't keep a scorecard. Or as Jen so gently put it last week. A type of spiritual Humiliation. That leads to virtue. Being poor in spirit is about God humbling us to reveal our need, our dependence on Him. And so that's kind of the working definition we're going with as we're thinking about being poor in spirit, a humble dependence on God. And thankfully, we don't have to look too far to discover our next big question uh, we're trying to read or trying to answer, which is how exactly do we get there? Um, how do we become poor in spirit? Um, we know that's what we're invited to be, um, but what shapes us in this direction? Well, just a few verses down from this first beatitude, Jesus paints a great picture for us, right? And so let's look together uh, if you have your Bible um, in front of you, verses 17 through 20. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is about to launch into his commentary and his expounding on the Ten Commandments, but he starts first with this explanation about what the purpose of the commandments really is and what he has to do with them. Um, You see, many of Jesus' first followers uh, including his disciples, were, were Jewish people, Jews. Uh, and there was a lot of fear that got stirred up as Jesus um, began his ministry, because many people thought that the way Jesus lived his life and the things that he taught were counter to the way they were taught to understand the Jewish law or the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. Many people were worried that Jesus was now trying to throw out what their scripture said and start a whole new system of understanding and following God that devalued obedience to the law. And some of us can relate to this, can't we? Um, you know, like the Jewish people of that time, we want God's commands to be black and white. We like our relationship with God to include clear-cut rules to follow because we're rule followers. Um, If God's word says, do not steal, we don't steal. If God's word says, don't commit adultery, we don't commit adultery. If we aren't to take God's name in vain, then we just stop cussing. Good luck with that. (laughs) We pat ourselves on the back uh, because we think we've done well. We look down on others uh, if we think that they haven't. And on the surface, this seems like a nice, neat little way to live where we're in control of our own performance. And if we're the rule following type, we feel a sense of pride and safety in knowing that we've done our part. Like the Jews of Jesus' day, we get afraid when there aren't clear boxes for us to check, or if there's more nuance than what initially seems straightforward. Get rid of the rules. How will I know if I know? How will I know if I've done what's necessary? Uh, to believe that I measure up, or at least that I measure up better than other people, right? So rule followers. The rule followers were afraid, but there's another group of folks who felt the opposite way, and were actually hoping that Jesus was going to abolish the law altogether. It was typical at that time that the Gentiles, people who were ethnically non-Jews, had felt judged and condemned by the Jewish law, Uh, In part, this was because the Jews had used their law wrongly to exclude the Gentiles from faith and practice. But it was also true that many of the Gentiles simply did not like the Jewish law because practicing what it required was extremely countercultural in that time and place. Part of what the law and practice was meant to do was to create a group of people who were living lives that were visibly set apart from culture and, and worldview of the people around them so as to point to God. And to do this meant that you would be going against the grain of what was normal in society. And many of us in this room uh, are listening uh, might resonate here too, don't we? Maybe you're not really a rule follower. Uh, you tend to be more of a rule breaker. You don't want anyone or anybody, anybody or anything telling you what to do or how to live. You know what's best for you. Not to mention that it's hard to swim upstream in our culture. We don't really want to be different or set apart. We'd rather God lighten up a little and not require much of us. Aren't some of his commandments a little outdated or unrealistic anyway? It's 2023 after all. If we get rid of the rules, I don't have to answer to anyone but myself. And that frees me from feeling guilt or shame because I get to set my own standards, right? So we've got our rule followers who are afraid to lose the law and the rule breakers who want to get rid of it. And to both, Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. The prophets being the people who were anticipating the arrival of the Messiah King. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So in other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not getting rid of anything. Every detail of the law and my commandments are vital, down to every T being crossed and every I being dotted, but not in the way you think. He goes on, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he adds this astounding statement for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Most people are aware that the scribes and the Pharisees were the gold standard of keeping God's law at the time. They were extremely rigid in their rule-keeping, and to the onlooking people around them, these were the holiest men that they knew. If anyone was doing right by way of obedience, it was assumed that the scribes and the Pharisees uh, were the ones to be imitated. But Jesus says that unless your righteousness exceeds or goes beyond that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean? If the Pharisees are visibly keeping all the commandments, how is there any more to be done to be good enough for God? And this is where Jesus begins to lovingly pierce our hearts because he's revealing to his disciples and to us that his law was never meant to be about us externally keeping his commandments and dutifully obeying his law. Um, What Jesus begins to unpack here and what we'll see him reveal in the upcoming weeks is that the heart of God's law and the heart behind our obedience to it, not just the letter of the law, uh, is where God looks to find true righteousness. In other words, the internal heart level motivation for your, your obedience is just as important to God as your external, visible level of obedience. Real righteousness is first determined by who and what we love on a heart level and is expressed secondly by the outworking of that love into service, good deeds, and obedience. And so it's at this point in the passage where rule breakers and rule followers alike sigh a collective uh uh-oh, together, don't we? If Jesus says we're never to relax on even the least of any of his commandments, what is a rule breaker to do? And if Jesus not only maintains the law of God, but takes it beyond outward obedience, meaning we have to have the right heart posture at all times and at all circumstances, what hope is there for a rule follower? Is there anyone who's ever been able to live this kind of life for one minute of time without failure? If the kingdom of God is to be filled with with only sinless, perfectly obedient, perfectly righteous people, will there be anyone there at all? What person can say they have lived their entire life this way? Well, the good news of the gospel is that there is one who has lived a perfectly obedient life, who was and is motivated by love for God and for others. When Jesus says to his disciples that came, that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it until it is completely accomplished, he's revealing to them and to us exactly how we are to become poor in spirit. Only when we reach the end of our rope and realize that we have no hope in producing our own record of true righteousness to merit a place in God's kingdom, can we finally receive the amazing truth that Jesus lived, died, and rose again to give us his righteous record that we could never earn? It turns out that God is so committed to his people that he was willing to send his own son, the king of glory, to do everything necessary to make it possible for us to experience the reality of the kingdom of heaven, not just when we get to heaven, but even now through his very presence. So whether we're rule followers who have wrongly used the law to legalistically try to build our own righteousness, or whether we're rule breakers who've wrongly minimized the law as a license to ignore responsibility altogether, Jesus says, Come to the end of yourself. Stop striving. Stop running. Look to me to give you the righteous record you need so that you can live the life of flourishing that you were made for. This is the way of being spiritually poor, becoming humbly dependent on God to meet your every need, a way of being that starts by receiving grace. Okay? And so what happens when you become poor in spirit? Where does it lead? Well, let's go back to our uh, Lectio passage, starting in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It seems to me that Jesus is using the metaphors of salt and light to give us some insight into what the fruit of being poor in spirit really looks like in his upside-down kingdom. And without trying to you know, fully unpack these metaphors, I'll just share a little bit about what I personally see here, as some of the characteristics of people who live humble, God-dependent lives that are super countercultural, paradoxical even. And the first characteristic that comes to mind for me here is that people who are the light of the world are publicly weak, publicly weak, They let their light shine in front of others. They don't hide. When you're poor in spirit, you have nothing to prove to anyone, including yourself, except to say, I have nothing to show for myself apart from the kindness of God in my life. And while it can be vulnerable and intimidating to be the person in the room uh, to say, I was wrong, I blew it, or I'm sorry that I hurt you, There's also a freedom that comes with that, uh, with publicly admitting our need and our shortcomings, because we know that this is the very reason that Jesus came for us. If we're in Christ, our shame is covered and we can be honest. If he's freely given us his righteous record, we can stop trying to manufacture our own by hiding our sin and rest in his infinite grace. Right. So publicly weak is the first one that I noticed. The second one, a second trait that came to mind was that people who are the salt of the earth are radically joyful, radically joyful. Now, this one might not be as obvious, but when I was thinking about salt and the way that it tastes, I was thinking about how much I love food. I'm a foodie. Anyone else? Okay. And just nothing makes me happier than when I get the perfect bite of food. Like, when something is, like, when, I'm feeling happy just thinking about it. Just, <laughs> you can tell. When something, I, I want to talk about Jersey Mike sandwiches, but I'm not going. I'm not going. <laughs> but when something is perfectly seasoned, right, and the flavor just, like, explodes in your mouth, my, little, my literal reaction to that when that happens is, like, I do this little dance in my seat. And I, like, start making these weird, like, happy grunting sounds um, and grinning from ear to ear. Um, if you ask anybody that knows me, like, they'll be like, yep, that's what she does. It's weird. <laughs> um, the point is, being salt of the earth uh, has a lot to do with people who are full of joy and we know that joy is not always synonymous with happiness, but joy is rooted, again, in God's love toward us in Jesus. Which really stands out uh, when most, most of the world's happiness is tied to the circumstances we find ourselves in. This is the way uh, we flavor the earth, right? To be deeply joyful, so being publicly weak and radically joyful are traits of the poor in spirit in the upside down kingdom. And now the last one that I kind of want to point out uh, is to us is that as the light of the world, God's people are supernaturally generous, supernaturally generous. Did you notice how the lamp in verse 15 that gives light to the whole house is connected in verse 16 to letting people see your good works? I think what Jesus might be trying to say here is that the way the way of being that exists in his kingdom people is that as they flourish, they also seek the flourishing of those around them. In other words, they're thriving, they're growing, is not something that they keep for themselves, but is something they freely and joyfully push out into the world around them as a way of expanding his kingdom. These people uh, who in Christ have been given everything they need for life and godliness. Uh, they don't have to hoard the things that they've been given, right? They illuminate the world with their good works and their generosity, uh, because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is theirs in abundance. The kingdom of heaven is theirs in abundance. It's an available vault full of God's unlimited resources that are meant to be shared for his glory and the expansion of his kingdom. These people are are supernaturally generous in a world that clings to what they believe are their possessions, their time, their energy, because they know that God has been supernaturally generous to them. I'm sure we can all see how people who live this way as salt and light, uh, humble, weak, joyful, generous, are a paradox in our culture, a visible expression of the invisible reality of God's very present kingdom. And you know, one thing that I discovered when I was reading through Andrew Pennington's commentary on the Sermon on the Mount is that um, in a number of places in the Old Testament, salt is actually used in ceremonial events where binding covenantal agreements were established. The salt would either be eaten by itself or with bread um, as a way of uh, a lasting promise being enacted between God and his people. It was a metaphor for permanence. Um, essentially, God saying, When I make a promise, I will be eternally faithful in upholding my end of the deal. Interestingly, Pennington also points out that the language of covenant promises intersects with another familiar metaphor that we've just talked about, Uh, but this time in Isaiah 42, verse 6, and it says this, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. I just loved that when I read it because it's so perfe- perfectly kind of encapsulated and summed up all that we've talked about here today. God, in his goodness, dear friends, has called you into righteousness, which he gives you through his son. He takes you, poor in spirit, by the hand. The kingdom is yours. God's very presence lives in you, and this is where he keeps you. He gives you as a salty covenant promise to the world, a light for the nations to say that our good king has come into the world to save it. See the way that his kingdom is expanding, even in our brokenness. There's great hope, great joy, and great rest to be found here in humble dependence. Won't you join us? All right, We're witnesses salt and light evidence that God will not abandon his people. He has set his covenant affection on them and he will be with them until he calls them home. To be flourishing by being people poor in spirit because the kingdom is ours. To be salt and light in a dark and broken world. This is the incredible paradox of the upside down kingdom and this is what's available to us today. And I pray that we can believe and rest in that together. Let's pray together. Father, thank you uh, that you um, are a covenant-keeping guide. Lord, that you, when you make a promise, you keep it. And what you've promised us is that when we're poor in spirit, that the kingdom of heaven belongs to us. Lord, and so I pray that you would uh, sink that deep down into our hearts, help us to rest in it, to believe in it, uh, so that we would put down our rule-keeping, our rule-breaking, Lord, so that uh, we would become salt and light uh, into this world uh, for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.